Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out, I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is a veteran of URM, Mr. Jens Bogren, who's been on the podcast twice, done Nail the Mix twice, spoken at the URM Summit in 2019, and he's doing Nail the Mix again in June of 2021. He's best known for his amazing production with bands like Opeth, Amana Marth, Arch Enemy, Demo Borgir. The list just goes on on and on. He's also known for his latest venture, Bogren Digital, which offers some amazing IR packs and has some very exciting stuff coming up. I present you Jens Bogren. Welcome back to the URM podcast. Thanks, Al. It's uh, a pleasure being on here again for, uh, what is it, the third time? That's a charm, right? Yeah, hopefully. Because, I mean, the other two were... Actually, I really like the other two episodes. They were uh, They were really good. So, Anyone listening to this, if you enjoy it. The first one, I think we did what, in 2016? I have no idea, but, you know, that could, that could be... It's either that or 2011, I don't remember. <laughs> Something like that. So speaking of time, man, how's your past year been? Oh, it's been a special year for everyone, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, for me, it also, I mean, apart from the pandemic thing, it also involved uh, moving into a new studio uh, that I've built. And also moving house. So it's been uh, pretty crazy. And I've also launched this whole Bogren Digital thing together with a business partner, uh, Jacek. And uh, yeah, so it couldn't have been crazier for, for me. Uh, but uh, I've been spared the, uh, the virus thing. Um, my loved ones are okay. So I shouldn't complain about anything, really. So I remember we did Nail the Mix at the old studio. And I remember you telling me that you were going to get a new one. And I remember thinking, but what's wrong with this one? This place is awesome. It was beautiful and perfectly isolated, which is good for me because I hate being around people. It seemed like such a good situation, like the kind of studio that people work towards their entire lives. So I just had a curiosity, why 
did you want something new? I mean, it is a good question, obviously. When I started out, it is now, this is my 20th uh, anniversary this year, uh, running Fascination Street Studios. You're 20 years old? Yes, uh, I am. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. It's a big beard for a 20-year-old. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, I've been running Fascination Street for 20 years. The first studio was like in an old barn, a big, big style studio, big, big live room, all that kind of thing. And that nearly killed me, to be honest. Uh, I was just working all the time. And uh, when I wet, met my wife-to-be, uh, I decided that I needed to do something about it. So we decided to um, uh, to build a house and I built a studio next uh, to it. So um, that was my thing for, what was it, like uh, 10 years? It was like two houses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. One was the studio, one was the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then eventually I reached a point uh, where I felt that I needed perhaps more space. I guess I wanted to build myself away from recording. That was also a, a part of, of this uh, next to the house kind of studio thing. But uh, it only took me like a year before I realized that I, you know, actually wanted that big drum room. So I had the studio on another location and uh, for the last five years or so I've been having a studio in Stockholm uh, together with David uh, Castillo. So I've been doing my drums there, but then I sort of started to to have the need for uh, for a ma dedicated mastering room because I also have Tony Lindgren uh, on on staff, and uh, mastering has really picked up for us. And we needed more more space, so we were looking around for uh, you know some place to to build uh, mainly a mastering room. But then I realized that it's Urbu is not the most expensive city in the world, but it's still. Uh, if you're gonna rent something and, and then spend a lot of money building really great recording rooms, it is a bummer if you're not in control of the real estate. I ended up uh, planning for, for a completely new, like ground up facility. I think that was like three and a half or even four years ago that I started the planning. It's basically now since last autumn uh, when I was able to, to finally move in and start yeah, working in this new studio. There are still some things that are unfinished, but it is basically my the last studio I ever built kind of thing. Uh, like 6,000 square feet facility with five bedrooms and um, three uh, proper control rooms, two smaller control rooms, big live room, uh, smaller room, uh, kitchen. Um. The real deal. Yeah, it is crazy. It's stupid, to be honest. But the good thing is that we can we can all be here now because now we are like, uh, I have to count uh, five people here in Urbu uh, in the company. It is good to have everyone gathered at the same pl place because I've been renting uh, another studio in Urbu as well to, to host uh, Linus that's also working here with, with mixing. That's about it. It's just interesting in this day and age when... I know people who are building studios like that still because it's such a rare thing. But it brings up the point that, you know, we get asked all the time, should I build a studio at home? Should I build a commercial space? And obviously I think every situation is different, but I really feel like the rule these days, what makes the most sense is build a studio at home. And then when you actually need a commercial space, like when you get to the point where the home setup just doesn't work for you anymore, like there's there's too many people involved. It's too crazy. You're destroying your home life. There's too many clients. There's just too many needs that a home can't satisfy. That's the time to do it. That's true. But before that, it seems crazy to try in this day and age. 
It is. I mean, it was a little different for me uh, like 20 years, uh, 20 years ago. Then there was still some sort of business um, happening, like, you know, local scene and that kind of thing. Having a studio next to my house has been great, especially when, uh, because I have three kids, uh, having the kids come to to earth and raising them has been really good, you know, being close to home. From a financial point of view, uh, being able to keep costs down and also tax-wise, depending on, you know, different countries have different layouts. It's been favorable for me to sort of own the studio uh, privately and rent it out to my company. So that's something I will lose now, but uh, yeah, I guess we're going to the next level a little bit uh, in terms of, of that. And it also makes a lot of sense now, especially with the Bogan Digital and all the kind of stuff that's gonna come out there that we have a, like a proper uh, commercial place. But I cannot recommend it to anyone. <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, just like with a lot of the stuff that I've done, uh, for instance, I don't suggest anyone try the stuff that I've tried. And I think that it's the same with uh, production or being in a band it's not a good idea to try what other people try. You have to kind of make it work for your own situation um, and then evolve it as it goes. I feel like trying to follow the path that somebody else followed is kind of a recipe for failure because the only reason that it worked for them is a unique set of circumstances that they capitalized on, basically. So I think you kind of need to figure out your own path forward and... Uh, and evolve it as as necessary and as appropriate. Um, I've just seen lots and lots, and I'm sure you have lots and lots of uh, producers basically get in their own way by incurring too much cost up front, like before they could really uh, handle affording it, uh, and basically forcing themselves into a situation where they have to take shitty work nonstop in order to pay for this thing that they set up for themselves rather than giving themselves a little bit more freedom to get better, be a little bit more choosy with who they work for, not having the same kind of uh, massive, massive, uh, I think, responsibility to do stuff that they're not ready for. I've just seen it, a lot of people slow down their own momentum by doing that sort of thing. Yeah, and there is also the uh, the the thing uh, that I think I've talked about in the past that once you make your hobby uh, your living, if that's what you're where you're aiming, there is a risk that um, it will start to be you know pretty boring because it has been the same for me to be honest, uh, like. Uh, being in a band, recording my own band, and um, eventually recording other uh, artists and bands—that was my, you know, the best thing I knew to, you know, to be able to do that as a hobby. But once it becomes your profession, then you lose a little bit uh, of that enjoyment, you know, and then suddenly you don't have a hobby anymore. Uh, and it's really easy to uh, sort of work all the time and um, getting burned out or, or whatever. I've had uh, all kinds of muscle problems in my face and whatnot <laughs> over the years uh, because of that. So, But it is different today. Today you don't really need a really big studio to get going. You know, there's so much stuff available in the, in the software world and uh, just uh, with a laptop. So it's, uh, it's a unique situation uh, in a way, historically speaking, for young up-and-comers. I know that there's people listening who are probably saying, well, it's easy to say you don't need much. You're building a 6,000 square foot facility, but it's true. You don't need much. 
if you were to reset right now completely, just some weird shit happened and you didn't have your studio anymore, you could only mix from, you know, a bedroom or whatever. I'm sure within a matter of months, you'd already be at a spot where you could get yourself a, a room and gear and, uh, or stay and stay on a laptop if you wanted to, and you could still continue your career. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it was just a matter of uh, this sort of having a place to to mix um, and maybe track some vocals or a silent recording of, of guitars and bass. Uh, it really doesn't take much to to do real high quality uh, results. Um, so it, for me, it's a little different with you know the, the big. Uh, live room that would be for for the drums and then I have cli- clients uh, always coming over here and needs to stay and so it, it's a different uh, situation for sure I could definitely be doing most of my work from my toilet if I wanted to be honest good acoustics in there yeah that's what I'm saying <laughs> I think that the reason that a lot of people don't like that idea is because it forces you to focus on what's important Right. So if, if someone really accepts, I don't need to buy all this fucking gear. I don't need a commercial place until I actually need a commercial place. I have everything I need right here on this computer. The only thing missing are my skills. Well, then that means you need to work really hard for a while to develop those skills. And I think that that's, that's more intimidating and harder psychologically for a lot of people to accept than to think, well, I can just save up X amount of money, buy this piece, and in some future world that doesn't exist yet, I'm going to be better because of this. Yeah. It is also easy for for some someone like myself that, be, that has been working for a long time to actually know what's required and not. Uh, because I've been like that as well, you know. If I only get that SSL console, then I'm going to be able to do really great mixes. If I can just get those speakers, then everything is going to be much easier. If I can just get that compressor, finally my vocals are going to be like that or that vocal microphone. It's a natural thing. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and I've had... And I have, I guess, uh, all of that, uh, but I can't say that any like key equipment has been make or break for me. I mean, I was doing good stuff on a Mackie console uh, 25 years ago uh, when I listened back to stuff, you know, and, and I could hear stuff I did on a s- soundtracks with no automation, tape everywhere to be able to ride faders and um, stuff that, you know, I, I think s- sounds great today when I listen back. So it's not so much about those pieces of gear. It is the uh, the experience that is the most uh, important and, you know, the drive to really want to develop and uh, become better and uh, some sort of method perhaps to also evaluate the work, the ongoing work. I remember, man, when Mike Ackerfelt came to my parents' house where my original studio was to record a vocal for the Roadrunner United thing in 2005. He told me about working with you. You guys had just finished Ghost Reveries. It was during the Sounds of the Underground tour. They were playing in Atlanta, and uh, James Murphy was staying at my house, and they needed to record the vocal. So it just worked out that way. And uh, he was telling me about working with you. I hadn't never heard of you before. No one really had, in at least in the American metal scene. And he told me, yeah, uh, 
there's this guy we worked with, Jens Bogren, who uh, is this young guy, but he cares about all the right things. His attention to detail is insane. And he just kept on talking about uh, about that, how you had a greater attention to detail than he had, which he had never found really before in the studio. And it's not like he worked with bad people before. He worked with great people before, but he got drawn to you because of your desire to get things absolutely right and to get them way better than they had ever been before and also unique. And so I think back to that, how old were you? 25, 26 at that point in time? Yeah, 25, 26. Yeah. So my point being that uh, what really, really matters, and I think what matters to artists too, who are hiring somebody is what's in their head. How much do they care about the project? How much are they pushing themselves to get every detail absolutely right? As opposed to how big is their studio or what piece of gear are they on? I just, I just, I remember the conversation so clearly because he was talking about some producer that I had never heard of before when he could have easily gone with uh, Andy Sneap or something or Colin Richardson or whoever in those days, right? And he had gone with Andy Sneap prior. I just remember how much he was talking about this new dude that nobody had ever heard of. And it made me start thinking a lot actually about what is it that actually matters when you're trying to get good at this? Like, what is it that people like him will actually be impressed by when looking for a producer, regardless of how old the producer is or whatever? What is it that really blows people away? And it it is somebody that does want to push things further and that does have that attention to detail. That brings me to something else I wanted to talk about. You hired Jashek or J6 as people know him on Facebook. And one thing that I noticed about him is that he's got a really insane attention to detail as far as uh, helping you out goes. Um, so I guess what I'm wondering is when you're looking to hire somebody, how important is that to you? How insane do they need to be when thinking about every single little detail that you need covered? First, when it comes to uh, Yatsek, it's a little different because uh, we actually formed um, a new company together for the Bogren Digital stuff. When it comes to the actual studio work uh, for the people that I have here, uh, that are working here, two of them are people that I had at Urbu University back in the day when I was uh, doing some, some teaching there. And I sort of found these guys that were really, really driven uh, and promising. So uh, that would be uh, Tony Lindgren and uh, Linus uh, Corneliuson. It's all these different things, to be honest. I mean, one thing is obviously to be able to have a, a great ear, you know, to know what, what's going on, to understand where the focus needs to uh, to lie. What do you mean? I, I have heard, um, you know, a lot of mixes, for example, uh, and productions that I think is good in, in one way, but not necessarily good in the sense that I think a production should be, you know. It could be like a super perfect, perhaps, but it's not moving me when, when I'm listening to it. Uh, there could be someone that is super good at, you know, like gridding everything, editing everything, or uh, super good at guitar sounds, but it's not perhaps able to get things together. I guess I'm looking for someone that shares the same type of musical uh, slash productional vision as myself, because it can be very different. You know, you can hear a production that sounds that way or that way. And 
for me, if someone would be working with me, I needed to be sort of close to to my own uh, vision. And uh, what that is, I don't know. When I produce, I don't have like super specific goals about things, you know. I just sort of have the experience and I let the the artist and the the songs and, and the music sort of lead my way in, in the choices. Does that make sense? Yeah, but you have an you have an aesthetic that's uniquely yours. One thing that I've noticed when listening to people's mixes, like student mixes, is yeah, you're right. They can span the range from like too perfect or to this or to that. But one thing that I've noticed is that every once in a while I'll hear one that might not you can tell that technically they need a lot of work still. They're still student level, but there's something about their musical understanding where you can tell that they get the music artistically. Like they understand where it's supposed to go. They just don't have the technique yet or the experience yet to solve all the problems. It's like their soul is in the right place. And I've always found those are the people that I've paid attention to. And they tend to be the ones that end up starting to do things beyond the URM world. It's it's interesting. There's It's like this deeper understanding of music. I feel like what you're saying too is kind of the same reason that I say that in order to be a good drum editor, for instance, you actually need to have some musical maturity. You can't just know how to grid things. You need to actually understand the way drums are supposed to feel, what the drummer was intending to do, pocket, you know, whether things are ahead or behind. Like you need to understand and be able to feel all these things in addition to know the technical side of things. And I'm assuming that kind of what you mean is um, technique aside, if they don't have that musical understanding for kind of where you want things to go and what the artist is intending, it kind of doesn't matter. Absolutely. One thing, if you if you are going to leave the bedroom, so to speak, and actually work commercially with a large number of different clients, you will end up working with all these different type of personalities mm-hmm. where one band really wants it like perfect, you know. If, if they hear something flaming, oh, this doesn't work. Okay, but well, I think it works. But okay, if you don't absolutely don't want that flam there, I, I can fix it. And then you work with another cl- client uh, that where it's super important for them that everything feels organic. It's like, oh, did you edit anything? It's like, yeah, I mean, uh, no. And then I did. And then I might have to, you know, fix things without, so it cannot be heard to them, so to speak. Clandestine edits. Yeah, I mean, you need to sort of be able to master some different schools, so to speak, or different techniques to be able to work with a large variety of clients. Hopefully you have enough under your belt so they also trust you with, you know, with a vision and that kind of thing. But that's something that I've felt because I have been using some external people sometimes for for various editing tasks. It's a pretty rare thing to have both like the the musical mind for mixing and editing um, and also be technically good. It seems like it's it's a rare thing to have both halves of, of the brain in that regard, so to speak. That's actually why I think there's not that much competition out there. You know, people say that it's a super oversaturated field and impossible to get anywhere because there's so much competition. But I actually think that when you actually filter out all the people who either don't have technical skills or don't have musical understanding or don't have the right personality or aren't willing to, you know, make 
personal sacrifices. So like when you filter all that out, you're left with an extremely small group of people who are actually capable of doing it. So if you, if you actually have some technical skills and some musical understanding and a good personality, you're already ahead of like 99% of the people out there who are trying to do this, in my opinion. There isn't that much competition. Yeah, you might be right. Uh, you are probably more in a better position to judge that than I am because I'm just have my, my head is uh, between my tits all day looking at the screen. <laughs> well, think about what you just said, how rare it is for someone to have both the musical understanding and the technical skill. Yeah, it is. I know that for a fact. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's super rare. So out of curiosity, when you're looking for somebody to hire, which side is more important to you? Do you prefer that they have more technical skill or more musical understanding? The musical understanding is much harder to to obtain. So uh, I think that would be uh, the priority. At least if you're looking for someone that's supposed to be handling both like production tasks um, or recording tasks and also mixing tasks because the technical skills are easier to to sharpen and to teach i think yeah i mean the musical skills can also be the, the more you you do it the more you mix the more you record the more you edit or tune vocals the more you play music the better you get obviously but but it's um i don't know i guess it's some sort of You need to have a little bit of natural talent for it as well. Whilst the technical side, someone can also always learn, you know, Pro Tools or uh, Be Detective or what's the difference between this microphone and that microphone. It's not that important. It's hard to define because if someone is looking to become an assistant, by definition, they're not going to have the same amount of musical experience as you, right? Because if they had all the technical skill and all the experience why would they be looking to become an assistant? It, like, it doesn't fit. Being an assistant is a stepping stone, right? It, no matter if it's five years or 10 years or one year, there's a, a limited amount of time that that position exists for because relationships run their course or people's skills develop or if they're doing a really good job, they earn the trust of people and then they start getting their own gigs. So there's only a limited amount of time that it can last for, um, in my opinion. But by definition, they're not going to have the same level of experience. So I guess what I'm understanding is uh, you're more willing to teach them the technical things as long as um, you feel like musically they're coming from the right place. To a degree, it's hard to define though. Yeah, I mean, uh, with the uh, with the guys that... That I've had uh, have employed in the past, I guess I've, it's been a you know a constant development on on all fields, um, of course. And um, I guess some of them have really picked up on everything I say, you know, and really try uh, harder. And next time that problem will not happen again. While others may have a little harder, you know, to to grasp. Like uh, they say that okay, I got it, but then well, actually they didn't. It's hard to say. It's really different. Some people my might have a really hard time with the technical side and for, for others it's just a you know you have to show them once and then they uh, they got it it's hard to say this is such an organic field of work to be honest it's uh, and no one can be best at, at everything so it's organic in that i've noticed that oftentimes whenever i've seen somebody hired or whenever i've hired somebody like for instance when URM hired nick uh, who you know 
he didn't really know how to do video. He's a terrible man. <laughs> Fucking Nick, such a bad person. I'm kidding. I love him. He hurts puppies. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He doesn't hurt puppies. Nick's great. But he uh, he didn't have the skills he has now at all. Like He was not good at video, not good at video editing. He literally didn't have the skills he has now. He had some, but not anything like what he can do now. And uh, it was just super clear to us, though, that he was the person. Like We could tell that if we put time into him, the skills would develop because he was the right kind of person. That was a lot more important to us than getting some video guy who, you know, had this like huge, huge resume and all these skills and a big career already. Like we had met people like that, actually. We actually hired a guy like that at one point in time. It was an amazing video guy. It pissed everybody off. It was impossible to work with. Maybe one of the best video people I've ever met in my entire career. My point being that we went with someone who had, at the time, less technical skill, less experience, but the right attitude and the right talent level. And that proved to be the best decision, I think. And the one thing that he did, which I think is really, really important for people who are looking to become an assistant or an intern, was... He focused really hard on solving problems for us before we had to tell him that they were problems. You could tell that his mind was in the right place. He was trying to make our lives easier. And so that meant anything from anything from helping us not have to think about the food order for that day all the way to highly technical things involved with running the stream or whatever. And I imagine it's kind of the same for you, probably looking to have your life simplified in the studio to a degree. Absolutely. I do agree that having the right type of personality is, is the most important thing, <laughs> probably more important than musical skills or technical skills. Even though if you, you know, supposed to work like solely with mixing, then I suppose you can be sort of an asshole. It doesn't matter. But uh, if you're going to be like the kind of person that is around the studio, working with clients in the studio and, and pr doing production tasks and, and help, then the uh, personal side is, is very important. I've actually had a situation like that with, with a pretty big band uh, and we had a, a guy that was pretty fresh in the studio and he helped out. A third guy that was more experienced was also in the project and he came to me and said, yeah, you know, this guy, it doesn't work. I have to tell them to redo all the time. And the band doesn't seem to understand, luckily, because they love him. <laughs> From client perspective, it's this like, you know, if, if they work with people that they enjoy working with, it is usually more important that they are, that they are super good in getting that guitar take completely right or, or whatever. At least at the time, maybe not later, unless uh, someone fixes the takes, obviously. Fair enough. So what are you, like, if you were to think about what the ideal assistant situation would be for you what would that look like what would you be hoping would change about your workflow by bringing someone on like what what kinds of things would you expect to be improved or would you expect out of a person right now in the studio we do have some different tasks for for everyone what i usually don't want to do is to make coffee that's the most important thing 
the coffee always <laughs> needs to be on. And then when I come in uh, to start a mix, for example, I want the mix to be prepared for me to to be laid out. Uh, anything that's uh, that's off, you know, it needs to be fixed, like if I would have fixed it. So, and that's some. I've had that luxury now for for some years, and that's been amazing. Then you can go in and do your creative part without having to to fix things. I remember 10, 15 years ago, I was usually spending like, uh, you know, seven hours on a mix just fixing things. And then I was mixing for three hours and then the same on on the next song and that kind of thing. So these days uh, I probably spend more quality time on the mixing and I don't have to do all the like the, the preparation work and, and stuff and that can be very very different depending on where it comes from who produced if the band did it themselves etc so that's something uh, that someone you know working at fascination street would be able to handle how long would you expect for it to take for someone to understand what it is that you're looking for because obviously they wouldn't right away yeah, exactly. With the guys I have here now, I suppose it all started with them sort of, you know, sitting next to me or, or behind me. I would sort of, you know, try to explain all the steps that I was doing, trying to skill them up in, in how I make things. It's a little harder when it comes to production because you, it's a little annoying for the clients to have an assistant there at all times, right? So I usually didn't do that. But but uh, for the mixing tasks, uh, I've had my assistants sit in so they understand my mix process. So in case, uh, let's say that there would need to be some sort of late revision at some point, and I'm not available, then I could call my assistant to go in and he would immediately understand everything in my mix, opening it up and fix whatever needs to fixing and then and then print it. Kind of need to be in person to be able to develop that kind of understanding, I think. Absolutely. Zach Servini hit me up recently and asked if I knew anybody who I would recommend to work for him. And first thing I that I thought was, well, I know lots of people who would be good enough, but do they need to be there with you? He said, yes, absolutely. They need to be there with me. Well, that right there eliminates a lot of people because if they need to be right there with you. Probably what that's going to mean is they're going to have to move. Probably. Yeah. Just with the way that things are set up now. So so it's got to be someone that's willing to relocate. You're not looking to train somebody over the internet, is what I'm understanding. Absolutely. I mean, all the people that work here now are people that um, are here locally, physically. Two of them moved in from other countries and, and two were here from, yeah, the, the old days um, and... Uh, learn the really long way, so to speak. Nowadays, you would expect them to move to you? Absolutely. I think so still. It is um, unbeatable in efficiency uh, to do that. It depends a little bit though. Some like some assistant work, like editing work or or stuff can be done remotely and we have done that. I don't know. I built this big studio to be able to have the people around me, I suppose. So I feel like there's two paths to making this work for yourself in the modern age. One is you're in a place where maybe there's not a ton of opportunity, but somehow you work with bands and one of the bands takes off and you take off with them. And that's how you start your career. That's one path. The other path is you start working underneath somebody who is working with the kinds of bands that you want to work with and you come up under them through their system and eventually, you know, do your own thing. Um, whether it's as part of their studio or branch off on your own, that's kind of how it works is either 
a local band you're working with gets discovered and blows up or somebody who's already working with bands that are on the level you hope to work with one day hires you and teaches you the ropes and lets you develop. And situation A, where a local band you're working with blows up is super rare. It's like close to impossible almost. So that's like almost like winning the lottery, in my opinion. Like I know a lot of people who that's happened for, you know, like a lot of people who have come on the podcast or now the mix, that's their story. But the thing is, people listening should understand that well, the reason I have them on Nail the Mix is because they are the exception. That That's not the rule. That's a super uncommon, and they're very special, which is why we're even talking in the first place. But the much more common route is to work underneath somebody who's already at the level that you're looking to get to one day and uh, get mentored by them and help them and build up. And in order to make that happen, it kind of makes a huge difference whether or not you're willing to physically move to where the opportunity is. It really makes a difference. This is why people move to places like LA or Nashville or whatever all the time is so that they can put themselves in the situation to get hired by somebody and work their way up. It makes a huge difference. So I feel like uh, in your situation, it's, it's no different. You need someone that's uh, willing to take that step and put themselves where the opportunity is. Um, and change their life for it. Yeah, it was the same for me back in the day. It's just that I did everything wrong. I didn't move to uh, LA or even Stockholm. <laughs> I moved to, to fucking Urbru, which is a small city. And I didn't move to anyone that I could, you know, save five years by learning from. So I took the really long detour <laughs> on these things. You're one of those exceptions though. Yeah, yeah. Like your story is super rare. Like there's far less people who did what you did and have like come out on the other side successful than not like you know gone to a small town and done it themselves that's not normally how it works i would consider you part of group a which is super rare it's just, it's just uncommon it is absolutely and like i said if, if i would do it all again i would definitely try to get an internship or something at someone that's experienced and, and, and good because uh, the other route is just too difficult. And I'm not one of these people that r likes to blame things on luck or whatever, but with the other route, the luck factor comes in that you meet a band at the right point in time in their career that's willing to give you a shot. You know, when the audience is ready for whatever you would bring to the table, there's a crazy amount of timing involved in the luck of having met the right person who would lead to the right opportunity. I mean, that kind of luck happens no matter what. It's required no matter what, but it's far less statistically likely to occur if you're in a small town in the middle of nowhere. It is. And it's required. You have to have that opportunity come up or else nothing happens. I agree. Unfortunately, that, that's the case, especially today. But uh, I guess today there there are also other ways, you know, like this thing where people start recording themselves, starting a YouTube uh, channel, perhaps doing... Um, yeah, you're right. That's definitely a, sort of a window of exposure that wasn't available uh, back in the day. So, yeah, I guess there are some other ways. True. That I guess that's a third way of doing things. But still, it requires, even if you're doing the YouTube thing on your own, it requires that A, either your material takes off or B, 
somebody likes your YouTube videos enough and gives you a shot mixing and their material takes off. Yeah. Like somewhere along the line, something has to take off and that's totally unpredictable. How did you get your opportunity to graduate in, into the record industry? I put myself in the situation where I took over a studio uh, that was for sale. I think I've told this story on the podcast before. So uh, if someone listens to these, then they may you know, want to fast forward. The, the reason I'm asking, even though you've talked about it before, is because uh, something interesting happened the other day. Sorry to interrupt you. I just want to tell you this. Uh, so we had Chris Crummett on Nail the Mix, and uh, it's his second time. And he's been on the podcast like four times. And people started DMing him, telling him that uh, it's about time that he came on Nail the Mix. He did a pretty big band last time. He did Dance Gavin Dance. Like, they've got a ton of fans. And his Nail the Mix session was actually one of the big ones that year. And a lot of people had no idea. Every once in a while, I'll make a post saying, who do you want to see on the podcast or Nail the Mix? About half of what people suggest already happened. So just because we talked about it doesn't mean that most people have even heard yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So, that, <laughs> and so that's why I ask it. And, and because I think it's super relevant. I took a little bit of a shortcut. So there was this studio in Urbu, a city where I've never been, that was for sale. And this was like, um, I don't know, early 2001 or something. And, uh, or late 2000. Anyway, so I contacted the guy that uh, sold the studio. Beautiful studio, you know, fantastic um, analog um, equipment and great recording room and everything. And I figured that, uh, oh, yeah, I really, really want to get that studio. Just that I didn't have any cash at all. So I went to the bank and they sort of laughed at me. So <laughs> I went back to the guy that sold the studio. And uh, what I didn't realize, you know, I was like, you know, 20, 21. Uh, what I didn't realize that no one else was really interested in this. I was probably the only one in Sweden who, <laughs> who saw this as a great opportunity at that time. Well, a little exaggerator perhaps, but I was able to get some sort of lease deal with him. So I rented the studio, started to work with like local stuff, anything like uh, jazz, um, folk, rock, singer-songwriter, um, some glam band, whatever. Because at this time, people still needed a studio to record their stuff, right? That was how I got going. I had been doing stuff uh, before, like uh, also in, in school. How did you end up in a situation where a band like Opeth is giving you a chance on something that important, like the, their road, their roadrunner debut. I mean, you're an unknown producer at that point in time. That that's a. So first of all, I know that roadrunner in those days. I don't know how they run now, but I know that in those days they were very picky about who they would allow their bands to work with. First of all, and on a debut, that's kind of crazy. It was crazy. I didn't understand at the time, obviously. But uh, so what happened is that I, I spent um, a few years in my studio working with everything that I could get my hands on, uh, sharpening my skills. I already thought that I was great. <laughs> I could look back, which <laughs> is perhaps not the case all the time. But And I did some local like heavy metal band. Um, and uh, this guy, Don Svane, that was working at the local music store, I had no idea who he was. He's awesome, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And he had been producing bands like Opeth, Catatonia, Melancholy and stuff back in the day. Bands that I've never heard of. He heard some stuff that I did and uh, thought it was great. 
so he recommended Catatonia to, to work with me. So I got to mix uh, one of their albums called Viva Emptiness in, uh, I think that was early on, like 2003, maybe. After that album, I started to get some international recognition, you know, bands from Italy and stuff started to send me stuff for, for mixing. I got to do Bloodbath, which was a uh, this, well, mm-hmm. they're still active, uh, collaboration between um, the guys in Catatonia, two guys in Catatonia, Peter, uh, Peter Tektgren, uh, Hypocrisy, Pain. And Mike from Opeth had been singing with them before, and I guess he's back in the band now. Uh, and Don was also in this band. So I got to produce an album with them, which must have been 2004, Nightmares Made Flesh. That was like the first time I even heard death metal, I think. So <laughs> after that, after the, the Catatonia and the Bloodbath thing, Opeth contacted me because they were friends with Catatonia. And Catatonia had told them that, you know, this guy, is, he's great and um, the studio is great and all that kind of thing. So, and Opeth came from a really bad experience with the previous album. A lot of troubles, they had to, to switch studios and... Um, yeah, I heard the studio broke. Yeah, everything. Uh, Among other things. They were in a position where they were also without a label at the time. They just, because uh, I think they were a Music for Nations and they got a bankruptcy thing or whatever it was. Uh, I think that mm-hmm. was the case. The label got bust and they were suddenly free from the contract. I recorded their album. We spent like three months doing the Ghost Reveries album. And I was, uh, you know, really wanted this to be great, but I still didn't really understand what I was doing. Like uh, in terms of, I didn't, you know, knew the band. Uh, I never heard. Well, I had actually heard about Opeth before because I saw them opening for Porcupine Tree uh, at one point uh, and I didn't like it. I thought, ah, what is this shit? <laughs> <laughs> then I got to work with them and um, Mike Gitter from Roadrunner came in to listen to the album and we were all a little bit tense because that was the first time they met him as well and they were about to sign uh, and that kind of thing. And he uh, thought it was great. I hadn't mixed the album at that point. We just recorded it. So uh, he thought it was, was good. And then they started to discuss the mixer and Roadrunner, like you say, they had a list of names that should mix the album. Uh, but Mike didn't want to do that. He said, no way I'm going to send this off to a random person. This sounds like... I want it already. Jens is doing a great job, so he he should do it. So I got the, the shot to um, or the chance to mix, and they loved it. And Roadrunner loved it as well. So um, yeah, I guess from that day, I've been super busy, basically. The luck in that, in my opinion, is that you started working on the album before they signed the deal. Yeah, that the luck. That's the luck. Is that because had it happened differently? they might not have had the leverage to push for you. Yeah, I'm sure. Even though Mike is pretty strong in his opinions, and he got mad when they started to talk about that they were going to decide who mixed the album. Mm -hmm. So that was also a factor, uh, I think. That's sort of the story, how, how that came about. And after that, I yeah, there was loads of other other stuff there. Yeah, there are a few other like parallel events at that time that also led to other jobs. Like Soilwork did an album at my studio with Daniel pretty early on. That also got quite a lot of attention brought to the studio. And uh, I was doing some other projects around that time. But um, the Opeth lead is definitely the, the big lead. And that stems back to... Catatonia and uh, Don Svane that worked at uh, the local music store that sort of, you know, discovered me. <laughs> you never know where these 
opportunities are going to come from. That's kind of the amazing thing. Yeah. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Bogren Digital. First of all, I think it's really cool you decided to start that. I wasn't surprised that you did it, but I was more amazed that you found the time to do it. Because I know when I met you before you did it, when I met you when we did Nail the Mix in 2017 or something, and we had already podcasted once before that. And uh, like I was aware of how insane your schedule is. I remember how long it took to get an email answered. Like I, I know and knew how insane, uh, how insanely busy you are. And usually the thing that stops producers from doing something like that, like starting a URM or a JST or a Bogren Digital, like starting some sort of a venture like that, the thing that prevents them is their recording career, is the amount of time it takes. My recording career was never on the scale of yours, but it was still full time. It was still absolutely full time. I had to quit completely. For Joey to start JST, he had to scale and URM, he had to scale back completely. Like there was, couldn't do both. So the fact that you haven't scaled back, in fact, you're going even harder with the recording, with uh, buying the studio, hiring more people. By the way, real quick, if someone does want to become your assistant, who should they get in contact with? Oh, info at uh, fascinationstreet.se. Okay. That would be cool because yes, we are... At this time, early 2021, we are 
looking for, for more people. So that said, you're not putting the brakes on the recording or mixing or production. Like you're going even harder with that, but you also started Bogan Digital. So first of all, how? Yeah, I mean, I am insane in the main brain. If it wouldn't have been for, for Jatsik, just quickly, I, I can tell the, the anecdote here because um, I was uh, selling my house and my previous studio last year because I was moving into the new studio and uh, getting a new house that was a little closer to the new studio. And also I didn't need the, the studio at the house anymore. So this guy from URM, uh, the connection come from there, uh, Jatsik, with the uh, last name that we will never try to pronounce. He <laughs> got in contact to me and flew over to um, to Sweden uh, pre-pandemic and um, fell in love with the house and the studio and decided to uh, take his wife and dog and quit their jobs in uh, San Francisco and move to Örebro to the studio. I could tell you something about that, by the way. In case you didn't know, back when he was in San Francisco, I was doing one-on-ones with him actually somewhat frequently because he was very frustrated with where his career was at in San Francisco. You know, he was above 35 years old and felt like the window of time is disappearing and like he's still not where he wants to be. And so we were talking a lot about what can he do? What's the next step? How do we make sure that shit works? And, um... Like the thing that I kept saying was you need to figure out a way to go where there's an opportunity, uh, like move, be ready to move, just go. If it means you start traveling to different places to meet different producers or whatever, start going on travel tours and find yourself a job. And when it, uh, when it comes up, be ready to drop everything. We had that conversation several times. And the thing that's interesting about it is I have that conversation with people a lot, but they usually don't follow through yeah, yeah. and actually go and meet the people who might give them the opportunity. And then when the opportunity comes up, drop everything. Mm-hmm. So he actually did that shit. He did it. Yeah, I mean, he was in a situation where uh, where he could, but he's an extremely driven individual. <laughs> I can tell you that. I'm super happy that, that I met him. And uh, I guess that's <laughs> somewhat thanks to you then. So thank you, Al. You're welcome. The whole idea was anyway that he was going to come here and work in the studio and hopefully be collaborating with me uh, as well. But then he sort of by accident pitched the idea of, um, have you ever thought about releasing any products or stuff and I've had those ideas I mean for 15 years probably uh, I've been thinking about ideas for for plugins or um, stuff like that I've been in contact with a few developers over time as well talking about some prospects but yes the problem is time I never had the time to follow through uh, on this it was when I met Jacek and he suggested this where I sort of saw the opportunity that this could actually happen if he did everything <laughs> apart from uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the sound parts or, or whatever. So um, since he moved to Sweden, it was delayed a little bit because of the pandemic, but he came here in, uh, in August, uh, I think. And he hasn't worked a single day in the studio because uh, he's been fully occupied with with Bogren Digital, and he was in San Francisco as well for the, for the past for the past year. So his uh, idea of moving here got a little different than he thought. Right now, he's you know all down for this and, and all in. So uh, the Bogren Digital thing is is for real, and it would never happened if it wasn't for for him. 
We started out a little easy with IR packs because it was, you know, an easy product to do. It was something that I could, that we could do ourselves. We have a lot of stuff in the loop and we have um, de- developers and, and people working on us, uh, with us on all level. I'm sort of a little bit afraid how this is going to affect my production career. Like you say, it is going to be quite a lot of time for me down the line that I have to spend on some of these uh, products. But, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and uh, right now it feels great if I can do something else a little bit uh, as well, even though I don't see myself quitting the uh, the mixing or production anytime soon. But, uh, you know, to be able to balance these two jobs a little bit, uh, I would enjoy that greatly. Yeah, without the right partner, it doesn't happen. And I think that to circle back to what we were talking about with assistance, I think that people really, really want to make something happen for themselves, uh, especially with somebody else who's already successful. I mean, there's no real secret, but the real secret is to help them with something that they can't do. It's not that you couldn't do it on your own if you had the time, but the fact is you didn't have the time. The end, you didn't have the time, so needed the help to get it going. If you didn't have your production career and you had the time, I'm sure you could have pulled it off on your own, but you know, we live in the world that we live in. We don't live in a fantasy world where things worked a different way. And so people should just pay attention to Jacek's story. Uh, Be willing to insert yourself where people need help. Yeah. yeah, he definitely took control over his own career by uh, by doing uh, all this. And um, yeah, he's he's like constantly coming to me with new new ideas and new ventures and new new people that he's been talking to, uh, new people that he you know tied to our projects and uh, that kind of thing. So it's an amazing um, asset. Where do you want to go with it? World domination is that on the table? Like its own country? Yeah, an island perhaps somewhere. <laughs> Fair enough. I hope that uh, the Bogan Digital thing, first of all, I mean, it is driven by me seeing some uh, areas uh, within music production that I think haven't been filled or uh, where, you know, where there's perhaps lacking products that I would be able to use myself. There are some stuff there, uh, some stuff that also has to do with like AI and machine learning that we're working towards. It's going to be very exciting. One driving force here is definitely curiosity, you know, to be able to see where, where we can go with, with things. The next thing is that uh, if we can get Bogan Digital to, to really take off, I think that I would love to see myself in a position where I don't necessarily have to be working with production and mixing like all the time around the clock like I've been doing. It would be nice to perhaps be a little bit more picky with with projects and be able to also spend a little bit more time on each project even if it doesn't mean a larger paycheck uh, it would be more important for me maybe to be able to spend a little more time on some projects and making sure the result is even better because it wouldn't be my necessarily the you know the most important income stream so it will allow you to focus more on the art i guess exclusively yeah it would be the same about the Bogan Digital stuff. What I'm, the parts that I'm involved in in those products, future plugins and instruments and stuff. It's, uh, it's all the fun stuff, uh, you know, creating the the blueprint sounds and samples and and whatnot, which is uh, 
fun and also very developing, you know, because I've been doing this for 20 years, like I said, and um, I can use that experience into making something uh, really good and uh, also take myself to the next level, like really give myself the time to explore all these sort of stuff that I've maybe never really had the time to explore before because it's always been ongoing productions and stuff, you know. I would love to just, you know, this month I'm just gonna try snare drums because we really need to have the best possible snare drum for this upcoming product, for example. That sort of stuff would be great. And then I would be off fishing in the afternoons. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's right. You love fishing. I do. Don't you have a Facebook page dedicated to it? Yeah, I mean, it sort of died a little bit because I haven't had the time. (laughs) But uh, I guess... When Bogren Digital goes bust, then I can go into the fishing venture full time. So. <laughs> so we've got two Nail the Mix sessions coming up with you, which uh, I'm super excited about. Uh, Septic Flesh and Amana Marth. They're two radically different sessions. I think it's cool that now uh, this will be like four different Nail the Mix sessions, and every single one of them is a vastly different sounding song, you know, Opeth between the buried and me and now septic flesh and I'm on a Marth. And reason I'm bringing this up is because a lot of people talk about how producers or mixers have a signature sound, right? But what I've always thought was when you go and you actually listen to a mixer's work who apparently has a signature sound, if you really go listen other stuff usually sounds different. Like with the Sneep stuff, people said his stuff sounded the same. But if you go listen, it doesn't all sound the same. Joey's stuff doesn't all sound the same. And uh, I haven't heard people say that your stuff sounds the same. But still, like if you listen to these four different tracks, there's nothing the same about them. They're all radically different. So out of curiosity, why do you think that some people get accused of sounding the same when reality is their stuff doesn't sound the same? I guess if you are a producer or a mixer that tend to quantize and use a lot of triggers, then I guess it is easier it's easier to get accused of always sounding the same because I guess you would reach for for uh, the same type of samples, you know, that you know works. And um, if you quantize drums very hard, I guess it is sort of a sound uh, to that maybe. And if it gets recorded in the same room. I don't know. I can see that, you know. Um, I guess that superficially, yeah, like maybe there's the same drum sample on some stuff. But like when you analyze the mixes like overall, though, first of all, I think it's impossible to replicate a mix it from is. one band to another. So it, it just it doesn't even work. Yeah. Even if I would mix the same song three times in a row, it would probably sound quite different. Even if you use the same samples. Probably. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's a psychological thing about that. And, you know, people like to simplify things or tend to simplify things, maybe. But if you compare Septic Flesh to Eminem Marth, that's also like 10 years uh, apart. So that's another yeah. reason, you know, it's, it's everything is very different there. Yeah, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I very rarely listen back to stuff that I did. I do have some sort of, you know, a few like references that I'm sort of coming back to just to calibrate my brain in terms of uh, 
amount of treble, amount of low end, stuff that I know sounds good that I didn't do myself. I may have one or two of my own uh, in that uh, library as well. But um, I never try to, you know, listen back. I always try to work ahead, you know, new stuff, new situations. Most things will be similar in method and uh, perhaps choices to, to other stuff that I did recently. And then everything sort of evolves. And if you look at yourself like 10 years ago, most things have changed. I don't know, for good or bad, I'm not sure. Sometimes I listen back or go into an old mix because you know I'm doing a 5.1 or whatever. And then I realize like, oh shit, I actually did like that. Back in the day, that's a good trick. I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal that for myself. So yeah, it's an evolving process. I usually describe it as some sort of circular movement that hopefully goes forward a little bit and not only backwards. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. You know, I think that more important than the go-to samples or anything like that, I think that the thing that's similar is the way that the person hears music, like their musical essence is the same. Right. So they're probably bringing that to records that they work on. And I think that in some ways, the more defined that their musical personality is, in some ways, the more of that that you'll get coming through a mix because you can't help it. Right. Like you can only make your own decisions. Your own decisions are going to come from your instincts and your tastes. But man, I have heard so many submitted mixes now over the years thousands and thousands and thousands and um you would think by now that if it was possible to recreate somebody's mix that i would have heard it and now you know a couple years ago we started doing stuff in our in our mix crit group where people were working on nail the mix tracks that already came out um you know like two years later so the live stream already existed. They could just copy the mixer's settings and pretend like it was theirs. And I know people do that. And it still doesn't sound like the original. I just, I think it's impossible. And so that's why when mixers get accused of sounding the same, I think that it's, uh, I wonder if people are really listening when they say that shit. Yeah. I guess it's, you know, they hear some, because I've heard myself say that as well from time to time is without analyzing it. You know, it's based on a feeling or a first impression rather than perhaps if I would actually start digging through uh, like I do, you know, sometimes. And then um, if I listen to some producer's work and then compare it to some other album, maybe it's a new band that I'm, you know, about to work with and I check out their previous stuff a little bit. And then I can hear that it's the same person, but it's like, oh, shit, that actually sounds very, very different, even though it's, it's the same person. Uh, so, yeah, I would say it's laziness, perhaps. Yeah. Do people ever ask you how to develop your own sound? Do you get asked that ever? How I develop my own sound or? Or how they can go about developing their own sound. <laughs> no, that's a good good point. They, they ask me which samples I use, not how they can develop their own sound. <laughs> Interesting. I think that there's no way to actually answer that question. That's why I'm wondering, because I get asked that a lot. I think that it's kind of impossible to answer because all you really have to do is learn how to mix and your own sound will come through. Like there's no way to really, in my opinion, there's no way to really consciously develop it because your tendencies are your tendencies. 
It's like your personality. Like your personality is, is what it is. Yeah. But then it also depends on what you mean by sound. If I see a music journalist, for example, talk about the sound of a band, it's usually not so much about the sound. It's more about the aesthetics of the songwriting and uh, you know yeah. how they arrange their songs. Um, and that has a huge role as well. Like, um, uh, And that should be what, what leads the mixing decisions, right? Uh, more than the taste, you need to sort of figure out what do I have to play with here in the arrangement? What could I maybe add to the arrangement? I usually do that in terms of you know transitions between parts and delays. Uh, I could even put in some sort of sub-synth at some point, maybe if I feel that a certain part needs more support and... Uh, I guess the sound of a mix is um, dictated by the sound of the band and, and whatever the, the song needs, hopefully. That said, a song could be mixed really good in a thousand different ways as well. That's why this is so interesting, right? The thing about a song could be mixed right in a thousand different ways makes me think about a movie. If uh, a different actor had been picked for something that we're all very familiar with, mm. like say that another really amazing actor had been picked for a very famous role that has become iconic. And odds are it would probably also be awesome, but completely different and unimaginable. Yeah. I don't think that you pick one thing and then every other option is terrible. I think, uh, like you said, there's a thousand different ways to do it right. What I wonder is, do you ever get that feeling uh, when you're working on something of, you know it when you hear it? right? Like it doesn't need to be explained. You just, you know when it's right, right? When you're going for a sound, like when you're dialing something or automating something or setting a level, like you know when it's right. Yeah, but, but uh, it's not necessarily my own taste that dictates the, uh, the end result. Because uh, sometimes uh, the most fun scenario to be, to be working in is uh, when you can do that and you feel that, you know, this is coming together great and the client uh, agrees and, you know, thinks it's great and everyone is, is happy and, uh, you know, uh, on clouds and whatnot. And you can go back for your own sake and, you know, fix things and, 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 and do that. But there could also be instances, uh, I'm just coming from a project like that, where I thought, uh, this is this is great, you know. The song has led me to to this. This is um, this is the sound. This is the mix. Uh, it's great. And then the client completely disagrees with you on that. The client does not think that there are a thousand ways to mix the song. <laughs> mm-hmm. The client thinks that there's just one way, and that is very very narrow. And uh, that can be pretty um, exhausting, and and eventually quite boring situation uh, to work under. Like uh, when you feel that this client doesn't have any imagination, (laughs) sort of. So uh, yeah, that can go both ways. But even in those scenarios, you need to stay professional, you know, and just, you know, figure out like, what is it that the client wants? For me, for this recent project, it took me like three revisions before we had dialed in like, okay, now we're on the path. And then there were a lot of small details, you know, like uh, this syllable needs to be that way in that speaker <laughs> and that kind of thing. When that happens, where you think it's supposed to be one way, right? And all your experience and tastes, techniques lead you to one place. And that place that led you to is just wrong for the client. I mean, you know, objectively there is no wrong, but 
at the end of the day, client's the boss. So, so it's wrong. And the client has a vision that's very, very different than that. And so you, you take the time, you do the revisions and you end up where they wanted. Right. But then you still have the rest of the work to do. It seems to me like it would be hard just because you're fighting your own instincts the entire time from that point forward. Or do you just snap into that mode? Say you had to change the vision. You get to somewhere that's not natural for you, but that the client's happy with. Like from that point forward, is it, all right, you're in this mode and so all your parameters have shifted and you don't even think about it? Or are you fighting your instincts the whole way? It can be both. In, in a usual scenario, it would just be a shift of um, perspective, and that's fine. Th- then I, you know, I get used to stuff as well. You know, two days later, I'm used to what we're doing, so I, I will follow that path. Sometimes it can be a matter like you, you sort of feel that you're mixing for what the client want to hear instead of what you think is the best uh, for it. It's like, okay, I'm going to put the vocals now on this this level because I know that, you know, based on the feedback I got so far, this is where they want it, but I think it should be louder. Or the opposite. Or this overdub thing, you know, I think it destroys the feeling of those verses, but uh, apparently the singer doesn't like his own the sound of his own voice and he, he wants the, the overdub <laughs> to be really loud or whatever. And um, yeah, but it's another one of those examples that this profession is just so varied you know i went from this product into another one and that was you know just felt like the songs mixed themselves and um, no day is another like i suppose even though they're all the same as well so (laughs) do you get frustrated oh absolutely the reason i'm wondering is because a lot of people say that uh you shouldn't get mad you should just go with it like this is a natural part of mixing like you just be professional and it's all about what the client wants and yeah they're right but you're still human yeah absolutely and uh, i have to to fight that you know i've uh, gone home from mixing sessions feeling completely fucking broken like uh, this is not cool uh, i don't ever want to work with this client again etc and then i still do their next album so <laughs> it can be really tough but i really try to think it that way you know I, and uh, sometimes it can help you know like people listening to this podcast and hearing that also Jens had had you know issues with clients or whatnot, and I've heard um, or I read an interview with um, Dave Bendeth, and he uh, shared an experience where he also had like you know clients um, not being happy, and then he said that then it doesn't matter how big your racks are, <laughs> you just have to sit down you know and, and push through it until the client is happy, and uh, so, so it happens to to everyone on any level, I think. And in a way, demand goes up. If you are doing um, bigger clients uh, on bigger labels, uh, it's more at stake uh, in a way. And uh, that can um, make things a little tense uh, sometimes, I've noticed. But uh, but it's super different. I mean, one client is that way. The next client, you know, will say that everything is awesome. You almost get mad the other way. Like, but for fuck's sake, can you at least say that the snare is a little too loud or something? That's scary to me if they don't say anything because I feel like odds are they're afraid to. Yeah, okay, yeah, maybe. That just scares me because I feel like how can anyone just think something's perfect? Like, it just scares me that they're not saying something now that... Six months later, 
they're going to hate. That's true. That's true. And in those cases, I have to become the critics myself in a way. Like, okay, so they're not giving me feedback, then I have to step into the feedback role. Because I usually like mix up the songs like 90% or something. And then I want to send it to the client so I can say that, okay, this is uh, still a little bit work in progress, but uh, I think it's time for you to hear it. So... So I haven't spent those extra hours on trying to get everything perfect and then I have to go back and rebuild something, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And sometimes the client would then say, oh, it's perfect. And if I then said, oh, really, it's perfect, great, job done. And then I move on. Uh, That's not the best for the album either. So then I I would have to sort of, okay, I'm not getting any feedback. I have to be my own uh, critics and and uh, sort of go back to the songs and figure out, hmm, what can I do better, uh, and this and that. Because usually I do that anyway. Like if I get some feedback from a client about a few points in the song or whatever, I would also do my own uh, feedback, so to speak. I would um, come back to the song, trust my first impression when I hear it again, do some fixes, spend, you know, it's fast usually. It's like 10 minutes of fixes going through, uh, doing some touch-ups, so I am happy. Like. Even coming back to the song, I'm happy. And then I can do the uh, the client feedback. So those things are pretty important uh, to me. So I like getting some feedback. Uh, but usually the bands that won't give you any feedback are bands that have been in the game for a long time. They work with all kinds of producers and uh, they trust your opinion, I suppose. Maybe a little too much. But they also realize that, you know, it won't matter that much if this is little like that or how's that yeah. gonna matter in, in 10 years sort of is it gonna affect album sales or not that kind of attitude which i think is you know that's cool and to be honest i guess i prefer clients that are you know a little bit more easy on that regard than those really nervous clients that uh, where everything has to be in a very specific way it's cool for people to hear about the frustration too, because I know that lots of times when uh, people earlier in their career, you know, working with local bands, get that first mix where the client hates everything they did. It can be very psychologically damaging. Yeah. And it's really not a big deal. It's something that just happens. Like you can't expect to please everybody the first time. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, a big part of this is figuring out what somebody doesn't like about something and fixing it. So, you know, I know that it's natural to get frustrated, but I actually think that uh, when people get a lot of feedback, that's a great opportunity to get better. It's just hard to see it that way. True. I mean, you always uh, develop, if you think that the client is wrong, there was always something that you can take with you from from that. And you might strongly disagree with them uh, as an instinct, like, uh, but then you sort of, you know, have to take a step back. Sometimes some clients are clumsy in their way of saying things as well. They will focus only on the negative things. And that's a tip if you ever employ a mixer. It is smart to uh, start with positive (laughs) things and, you know, encourage the person. And then what about uh, this and this and this? Uh, What do you think, Uh, you know, and, and sort of have a conversation going. I would be excellent in providing feedback to a mixer, I think. It's not necessarily because mixers are emotionally fragile. It's more because you can only go off of what you've been told, right? You can only respond to the feedback you've been given. And so if all the feedback you've been given is negative stuff, 
you might think they totally hate everything. Yeah. Like if they have nothing good to say or just haven't said anything good, you could think that's because they don't have anything good to say about this, which is not always true. Absolutely. And it is your job also as, as a mixer, I should say that, to interpret feedback because you cannot expect the client in um, whatever listening environment they may have to have maybe the, the best type of feedback. They might talk about something they want louder, but uh, it might not be the case. Like if you go back to the mix and listen with a fresh ear, maybe it is as simple as raising this and that, but it could also be about you know frequencies or finding a new spot for a certain thing. Like um, that lead guitar, it can't really go louder, but if I pan it out a little bit more, then it will be clearer. Or if I clear up this space and this other arrangement frequency-wise, then this will come through a little better. And it, it's uh, yeah, it's the job as a mixer to sort of find the best path. Uh, because if you just follow feedback from a client, chances are that the mix is not gonna really gonna be a good mix uh, anymore. How do you tell them that they're wrong, or is it more about figuring out what it is that they actually mean? and then giving them that. Yeah, more like that. Uh, unless it really is something that I think is uh, is wrong, then I would, you know, do a counter feedback thing where where I would say that, you know, yeah, okay, this and this I agree with, but this, I'm not sure, guys. Don't you think that this and this would, you know, sort of happen or that we getting the wrong thing? And then may, they may have an explanation that, you know, they say, yeah, but we have the intention of this and this and uh, okay, so, all right, I'll do that. And then I may, may have to do something else. It's not like I tell the client exactly what I did or, or whatever. The feedback part of the mixing is um, one revision is uh, is pretty fun. If it comes to a lot of revisions, it's not so fun. Do you ever feel like like you've had to sign off on something that was kind of ruined? No, I don't think so. I usually find ways to sneak things back into how this <laughs> supposed to be. Sometimes it's also a matter for the client to become used to what they're hearing, right? Yes. Imagine that they've been listening to rough mixes or um, things in a certain state before, or they still have like this demo of the song in mind, and uh, they might just you know need a little time to grasp. So usually the, the first initial feedback is, um, it could be quite a lot of pointers sometimes. Once you dealt with that, they're also used to stuff and usually there won't be much more. And sometimes that could also be a thing that I write, like, you know, take your time, listen, give it a few spins, listen around a little bit, get used to it a little bit before you send me feedback. It depends. But this is very, very different client to client. Is it harder ever when you don't know the client personally? The interpretation part, I mean. Yeah, maybe. I can't say that I've felt that that has been a problem. I guess if there's something that is unclear or doesn't make sense to me, then I would would ask. Mm -hmm. One little small tip could also be that never never accept feedback from multiple band members. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good one. Yeah, I, I guess more people have talked about that on the URM podcasts, but... You can never say that one enough. Yeah, it's uh, there needs to be someone that consolidates feedback and um, sort of acts producer, even if there is not a producer on board. Some sort of band leader or um, whatever. If they can't even agree on that, then I suppose 
they would need to just compile a list, but I hate that when you clearly can see that, uh, yeah, okay, so this is the bass player saying that the bass needs to be louder on all songs, and here is the drummer that, you know, wants the drums louder on <laughs> all songs and that kind of thing. But luckily, these things usually doesn't happen with a little bit more experienced bands. Like if they have released a few albums, they they sort of know what's what their roles are and um, what's possible and not and that kind of thing. It's interesting because personally for me, I had a much easier time being in situations with bigger bands because of that. I'm not good with the... Uh, with mixed notes and all that kind of stuff that's not in my personality. I know some people who are very far along in their careers who prefer to work with the smaller bands because even though there's more frustrating shit involved sometimes, the lack of experience, they feel like it's, uh, you know, they're exploring the unknown almost. It's like the possibility to develop something that hasn't happened yet as opposed to maintain something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And that hunger can also be, you know, inspiring to to work with, except for, as opposed to a band that already released 15 albums and just need a new one to be able to get a good tour slot. Yeah, but you know, that's also selling the veteran artist short, because I know there's a lot of them who have put out 15 albums and still want to do something great and new. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just interesting how different people's personalities are because there's just as many people that are far along in their careers who will never work with a new band. They just refuse. They don't want to deal with the headache of, uh, of a baby band and the bullshit that goes with it. They just not interested. Veteran bands are nothing. Do you have a preference? My personal preference for my own... Comfort would probably be a band that I worked with before uh, and that mm-hmm. I, you know, know that I have a good laugh with. That doesn't mean that, you know, it's comfort zone or we could still try to uh, to explore something new with a new album uh, and that kind of thing. So that would probably be the, the smoothest thing. With a younger band or, or a new band, obviously you don't know what, what to get. It could be an amazing experience or it could also be, you know, a little bit terrible. But, <laughs> but the, the way things are, uh, on a production point of view, I rarely do new bands because uh, there are so few of them that can afford uh, a production. Yeah, true. Uh, usually things would start with the bands sort of self-financing or, or doing their own thing before they would be able to shop for a, for a deal or whatever. So uh, I guess it's there's been a shift. I, I did work with more younger bands in the past. Perhaps it's also because I'm fucking old, so <laughs> who knows? <laughs> well, that just means you're still alive. That's the uh, the benefit or the side effect of survival is uh, you get older. True, true. Uh, Jens, I want to thank you for coming on. I think it's a good place to end the episode. I'm excited to see what you're going to do with Bogren Digital. I'm excited to have you on Nail the Mix, and uh, I'll just say it, I'm excited to do a uh, How It's Done course next year oh yeah cool i'm excited about that one as well and uh happy to do two more nail the mixes i guess i'm gonna feel like broccoli in my head after those ones but we'll see broccoli on your head well they don't need to be 12 hours long i mean i'm trying man i'm trying they don't have to be i'm trying i'm gonna do my best you know like sometimes they're only four hours long oh really uh, mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean that they're bad 
I know, and I'm I'm repeating it. I'm really <laughs> trying. I'm gonna do my best. The septic flesh one is gonna be intense. You know, there's a lot of yeah, lot I'm of stuff sure in that one. The other one I haven't opened in um, 13 years, so we'll see what that one brings. I mean, it can be long too, so that's also okay. <laughs> and uh, I'll just say we don't for people who are gonna ask because I just said that we're doing a how it's done course. We don't know what band yet. We're still figuring it out. But uh, well, thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'll see you around. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition... Do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. And use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.